If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. We'll start the show in just a moment after a word from our sponsor. Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management and online fundraising software that helps small to medium nonprofits, just like First Tee of Greater Akron, a nonprofit that empowers kids and teens through the game of golf. After just one year with Bloomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear how they did it or visit bloomerang.com forward slash intentional to learn more. Again, that's bloomerang.com forward slash intentional. Today, I welcome to the show my good friend, Erica Mills Barnhart. Erica is a communications expert, a speaker, and a professor on a mission to change the world one word at a time. She's the founder and CEO of Claxon Communication, a company that teaches high-performing, purpose-centered clients how to communicate with clarity and confidence so they increase awareness, revenue, and impact. Claxon's research-based method gets clients big results in short order. Her 100-plus clients have included the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Group Health Foundation, King County Library System, Macmillan, Path, and White Pages. She is the author of Pitchfalls, Why Bad Pitches Happen to Good People, and the creator of Wordifier, an online tool that helps nonprofits amplify their words. She wrote an article in the Stanford Social Innovation Review titled, Great Mission, Bad Statement, Why the Social Sector Should Worry About Words. Erica is also an associate teaching professional at the University of Washington. She also hosts her own podcast called Communicate for Good. And I can tell you from personal experience, she's not just super smart about nonprofit communications. She's a lot of fun, and she's more than a little bit sassy. Do you get annoyed with the generic, repetitive outreach that many nonprofit organizations use to solicit donations? Do you get inundated with message after message of, do this, get a donation for that, you need help with this? iWave's fundraising intelligence solution allows you to identify ideal donors that align with your nonprofit's mission and get actionable cultivation and engagement direction for each donor or group of donors so you can build strong relationships with the right message to the right donor rather than pitching one-size-fits-all requests. Make your donor feel like a partner, not a checkbook. Learn more at iwave.com slash fundraising transformed. Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Tammy. I'm happy to be here. Our pleasure. Erica, you may be the only person I know 
who loves words more than I do. <laughs> so tell me, when did your love affair with words begin? It began early, I will say. And the reason for it was, be so I was born in Canada, so I'm American, born in Canada, so American parent. And so when I started schooling, I started in Canada, and I started in French immersion. And so I spoke English at home, but at school, we only read and wrote in French. And then in between grades two and three, I moved down to the States. And so over that summer, I had to learn how to read and write English because there was no French immersion. Luckily, my mom was a grade school teacher, and so she was able to teach me. But I still was aware that I was behind where I wanted to be in terms of my ability to use language to connect. And so here I was, and I always share this because on the first day, so I'm very new. It doesn't sound that exotic now, but you know, like being in Canada, they were like, oh, she's And the teacher decides it'd be a great idea to have me sing the Canadian national anthem in French on day one. The like, first get, day in class? First day in class. And I, like, as I tell this story, I get very emotional. Even that little snippet of it, I get so emotional because I felt so other, right? And so then I had to work even harder in order to be like, no, no, I'm not that weird. I'm, no, no, I'm not you. <laughs> I didn't have this superpower that had always been a superpower for me. I didn't feel like I had it in the same way. I wouldn't have said it was superpower then, but like I could, I could feel that. And so I think it gave me this very early just abiding appreciation for the power of words and communication and language to connect and to kind of create the world and the life that you want. Mm, that's really powerful, yeah. especially at such a young age. Right? You know, for that. Yeah. Wow. So I had to really dig and figure it out because I started getting asked this question a lot. And I'm like, where did that come from? And at first, I spent a lot of time in, in France because I used to be French. And the French love words like, it's not a joke, like all of those caricatures of French people being like, but is that the best word really is it over dinner? Like, no, that actually happens. That's a thing that happens. My thought was that. But when I dug a little deeper, I was like, well, that came out of this very, very early experience. Yeah. Wow. And it has really formed your identity. It has. Mm, yeah. Amazing. Well, Stanford Social Innovation Review is one of my go-to publications. I mean, I would rather give up coffee than my subscription to it. That says a lot, right? It says a lot. So in your article, Great Missions, Bad Statement, you say the social sector should really worry a lot more about words. Tell us why. So my premise in my work and the reason that I was drawn to, like, how can we use words to make the world a better place was that although nonprofits don't have, like, sole purview over the world a better place, they are doing, you are doing, listeners, like, some of the most important work being done on the planet. Yeah. And, and it's ironic because simultaneously that love of the work and the commitment to the work leads to nonprofits wanting to tell their everything, right? And so nonprofits actually make it very, very, very hard. The very people who want to support them, to donate, to volunteer, to figure out what they do, why they do it, you know, the why, what, who, how of what they're doing. And so that's why nonprofits need to worry more about their words is because it does have bottom line, really true bottom line implications. But of course, it all ties back to mission. So that's the premise of worry more about your words. It really like down to the individual work, which we'll get to because that can sound overwhelming. So I just want to say to listeners, yes, sometimes it can be overwhelming. And that's why I take a word by word, kind of bird by bird, but it's word by word approach. Powerful. I think about 
in my communication, I always try to be clear, simple, and human. Mm-hmm. I love that. And there's a next level to that in terms of precision of word choice. Yeah. So what are the top three mistakes that nonprofits make in their communications and what should they do instead? So I'm going to underscore one that I already said, which is telling people you're everything. One of the things I say on repeat is essence, not everything. Essence, not everything. Especially when somebody's just kind of getting to know the organization. Mm -hmm. What's the one thing? And then what's the next? And then what's, you know, like bring them along. Right. So essence, not everything, but in general, there's a lot of like, I'm going to be like, you know, if you tell everything on the first date, like, bye bye. Yeah. And, and then just to make matters worse, if you tell people you're everything, they remember nothing. Mm. And really a, a big piece of what we're trying to do, especially with external messaging, is help people remember who you are and what you do because they may not engage the first time they hear about you. Right. And so you want to make it so simple for them to go, I refer to as mental file holders, to be like, oh, now I'm interested in helping kids. There's an organization. What was the name of it? Right. So it's an access thing. So that's why you want to simplify, 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 simplify. So that's the antidote. Sequencing and simplifying sort of the anecdote to the telling people you're everything. In the Klaxon world, we break the audience down into three types, right? Which is believers, agnostics, and atheists. Believers believe what you believe. They hear about you. They're like, yes, 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 yes. Agnostics, we could also think about them as just sort of uninitiated believers. They don't know about you yet. But once they do, maybe they'll tip into being your believers. Atheists don't believe what you believe. So like I use the example of animals because animal people have a really hard time understanding why you would not love the animals. Like you're kind of a jerk, right? If you're really a hardcore animal person, it's genuinely hard to understand that. And so... We spend a lot of time trying to get atheists, these people who are not all for the animals, right? They have other interests to convince them. And it's not a good use of resources. I have a caveat to this. In the political realm, you do need to be attentive to this, right? So I want to just like name that and acknowledge it. But all other instances, you're going to get a much higher return on investment if you focus on optimizing your communication for your believers and then you're ignored. So that's number two, and that's the antidote. <laughs> and then I would say number three is that the planning of your communication, marketing, fundraising plan starts with the how. So is it going to be direct mail? Is it, are we going to update our website? You know, what about that newsletter? It's print right now. Maybe you should be electronic. These are all hows. And there is a unending litany of options in this regard. There are some in the nonprofit space that are consistently the go-tos. That is the wrong place to start. It's not a strategic place to start. It's the most common, I will say, still, and it's not strategic. So where you want to start is what does success look like? What are the results we want to achieve, right? What are the outcomes? However you want to phrase that, but it's about what is the change on the other side. Mm-hmm. So start with the what, grounded in the why, right? Because that's just basic goal setting 101 is grounded in the why. So that when things get bumpy, you're like, what do you want? And then you go to the who, right? So who do we need to engage and for whom do we need to optimize our hows in order to achieve the outcomes? And then you get to the how. So it's what, who, how, what, who, how, grounded in the why. Start with the what. <laughs> the what, yeah. that who, and then the hows are really clear. And I want to just say, in case people are like, I know what my donors 
Like I know how they want to be communicated with. That could be true, but it is still a bad practice, right? To go back periodically, at least annually, and say, that may have worked. Have our goals changed? Mm-hmm. Yes, is there some truing up that can happen in order to achieve the highest return on investment possible? Both for the time invested. This isn't just hard costs, but I'm but I'm very, 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 very attentive for nonprofits of the opportunity cost of time and energy. Yeah. Especially in the nonprofit world <laughs> where resources can be quite tight. We know in many ways how our donors want to be communicated with. Do we sometimes make assumptions about that? And how can we affirm those assumptions or how do we verify maybe once a year or more often how they want to be communicated with and what they're most interested in the breadth of our mission? Ask. Ask. It's surprising to me. I mean, I'm sure you have similar advice. It's surprising to me how reticent nonprofits are to just ask. Because to me, this is like a beautiful engagement opportunity, right? So if you were genuinely open to like, hey, I'm going to stick with the newsletter, the print versus e-newsletter, because it's sort of a classic, I would say, right? Because it's mm-hmm. tempting when resources get tight to be like, we're just going to do an electronic. We can't make that investment in a print newsletter. You could look at your mailbox and see this impact, right? However, what if you went to your donors and said, you know, we're trying to figure out how do you want to know about your impact? Here are some things that we're thinking about. How do you feel about that? And what else might you recommend? How would you like to be hearing about the impact that you're having? I'm yet to hear an example of a donor being like, oh, I don't want to weigh in, you know. And I might say, I don't know, or something like that. But the fear that I hear in that reticence is that there will be rejection. It's like a fear of rejection from the donors because donors hold positional authority, right? They have power. Right. So I just always want to acknowledge that. But in fact, my experience is they really like being in. Mm-hmm. So I, I would ask. But you have to be genuinely open to the input. So if you're in a place where you can't receive that for whatever reason, and that's fine, that happens. Maybe this is just not the moment to course correct. So you need, it needs to be in a time when you are, and then go and ask. You don't want to ask for the sake of asking, knowing that you're like, well, there's nothing we can do about that. Yeah. Yeah. Good deal to that. Yeah. Yeah. And there can be a backlash. If you do, let's just say a survey or you do some one-on-one conversations or small group conversations and you get feedback, not applying or responding to that feedback can actually do more harm than good. Yeah. Have you seen that in your experience working with clients? Always. One of the things that when I'm coaching clients, so we always start with a survey, and it depends on what they're trying to achieve, what the survey entails. But I've refined these surveys over 20 years of doing the work. And it is interesting to see the feedback that they get, which is always sort of fascinating. There's always something you're like, oh, I didn't see that coming, right? And often we are asking about language and messaging as opposed to mechanisms, right? Sometimes we ask about mechanisms. And as equally as important as the questions in the survey is how you manage expectation when the survey goes out or whatever it's going to be. Because one-on-one, especially professional fundraisers know how to do this so well, one-on-one. But when it's a survey, you need to manage the expectations about what they will see on the other side. And so things like what we're looking for in the survey are patterns. 
So you may offer a word that's really important to you, but you may not see it in the final messaging. That doesn't mean we didn't factor it in. Please know it means that probably your word was part of a pattern, but there was a word that had the energy that we were looking for that was going to have the impact that we want to have. Mm-hmm. You have to say it up front. Because otherwise people are like, I took time to do the survey. What the what, what? Fair. Yeah. That's fair. So that's a really specific thing that I coach my clients on is what do you say in the email that goes out? How are you managing expectations? And managing expectations as a way to honor the input. Really good. I know you work with nonprofit executives to help them craft effective pitches. Mm-hmm. So coach me and our listeners on how to make the most effective pitch. I would restate it as how do you develop successful pitches? And notice that I made that plural, pitches plural, right? You want a series of pitches that maps to what I refer to as an engagement cycle. And the engagement cycle starts with, so it's no, understand, engage, right? And no is K-N-O-W. Not no. (laughs) So people need to know. They need to know you. They need to know your organization. And they need to know fundamentally. This is where that essence, not everything really comes into play. Fundamentally, what do you want to be known for? So when people say, what do you do? The response that you want to craft is what you want to be known for. Okay. I mean, it's a subtle, but actually very substantive difference. What do you want to be known for? So I'll use Claxon as an example. When somebody says, what does Claxon do? What do you do? I say, we teach high achieving purpose-centered leaders and their teams how to communicate with clarity and confidence. And then I stop. Because if someone is interested in any piece of that, they will ask a question. Well, what does purpose-centered mean again? How do you teach them to do that? Why clarity and why confidence, right? What you are looking for are the questions that you receive to that response to then move people around an engagement cycle to wanting to understand more, Okay. So this is the net set of pitches, our understand pitches, like understand what we do, right? And so you anticipate. So the work I do with clients is let's anticipate, right? Okay, you got your no statement. Let's anticipate what questions you might get. And then you have sort of a menu of options to choose from at that point in the conversation based on the question. And then eventually engage is actually the most straightforward piece, right? And this is where anyone who is listening, who is a fundraiser, Knows that like you're looking for the, what's the ask, right? So in fundraising, this is kind of like engage. What's the ask or what's the next step? What's the next move? It's a call to action in marketing and communication speak, right? So sign up now or whatever it's going to be. That's actually quite straightforward. But we leap to the engage, right? So leaping to engage, I believe, comes out of scarcity mindset, which is, and for very valid reasons, so pervasive in the nonprofit sector. Because you're like, I don't have time to go into all the things about understanding this. I need you to X, Y, Z. And yet, what this does, the net effect of that, is it reduces retention. Do you get annoyed with the generic, repetitive outreach that many nonprofit organizations use to solicit donations? Do you get inundated with message after message of, do this, get a donation for that, you need help with this? Well, if this is how you feel, imagine how your donors feel when they're bombarded with donation requests that all look and feel the same. Donors can feel like a checkbook rather than a helping hand. iWave, the industry's top-rated fundraising intelligence and wall screening solution, allows you to identify ideal donors that align with your nonprofit's mission. 
You can then cultivate strong relationships with the right message rather than overwhelming with one-size-fits-all requests. Make your donor feel like a partner, not a checkbook. Learn more at iwave.com slash fundraising transformed. Yeah, exactly the opposite of your intention. Exactly the opposite of what you want to achieve. So this is when I work with clients, I'm always doing mindset skill set. Mindset skill set, right? And part of that mindset work inevitably is doing a little clearing. I, I felt preparing your mind, right? Like we need to clear these limiting beliefs. Yeah, to identify them. Yeah, what are they? Where do they come from? It really has a bottom line impact, this jumping to that engage. So it's no understand, engage, and you're mapping. You're creating a series of pitches or sentences or whatever feels best to you that map to that engagement cycle. I'll tell you, once you get that no one like really dialed in, that is the trickiest bit. Tell me how long it took you to come to such a clear and powerful no statement. Like, what do you want to be known for? For Claxon. For Claxon. I love this question because I really like being transparent about what goes on because I get these questions that lead me to believe that people think I just like can pull all this stuff out of my hat, you know? Um, do I have a pretty good linguistic repertoire? Yes, I do. And I use the same processes, like everything I recommend we use at Clemson. And it's a matter of letting go. Like a lot of the work is letting go. And so last year, I transitioned from Klaxon marketing to Klaxon communication. And this was to sort of flag a transition for the company. Klaxon has been around for almost 20 years. And marketing only addressed one side of the communication polarity, which is internal and external. And what I was seeing is the internal and the leader's ability to communicate with clarity and confidence wasn't being attended to. And that was undermining this balance that all organizations need to have between internal and external. So it's to widen the scope. And increasingly, just naturally, my work was coaching leaders around their communication and their team. And so it took, I, I would say, I did come up with, because there's a process that you can use that you use, where you can develop the message, that no statement, pretty quickly. So I can do this with organizations 30 to 45 days. It does not need to take six months. Not true. The long tail of it is actually around change management, transition, letting go, grief. That's the long tail. When you find the words, you'll feel it. And then it's trusting that and living into that. But the actual developing the words and that no statement can be done pretty quickly. That's where the survey comes in. And there, you know, we start with the verb. And then you have to evolve the actual offerings, the services, the products. To become fully in alignment. Claxon's a small organization, which is sort of similar in that that just takes time because there's limited resource in terms of energy, money. So how are you going to sequence the transition? And what you've just described for your own business is the exact thing we would do inside our nonprofit organizations. Same thing. This is why the first question I ask clients, potential clients when they come, is the organization ready to change? Because if you're not, then it's not the right thing. Yeah. All right. So I, I can't step over this other piece. As a part of saying, yes, we are committed to change. You said that there's a grieving process, right? When we let go of some former identity or attachment, 
Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. It's not a popular thing in North America to talk about grieving. There's one name that, okay? We do a marvelous job of trying to act like grieving isn't a thing or we can like whiz on through it or whatever. Not true. Uh, it just comes back up, right? So so I like to take the tough stuff head on. <laughs> One of the things I hear from clients consistently is that they refer to it as conflict. And they're like, you keep naming the things, the hard stuff. And I'm like, on the other side of c- conflict, I'm quoting that right, is clarity. And isn't that what you want? And by the way, if we don't tackle this now, we're just kicking the can down and then it gets bigger, right? Like if you think of a ball that's going down a field and it's collecting more dirt and dust and all the rest of it, let's just deal with it when it's here. Yeah. Initially, grief can be very positive, right? It opens up space for whatever is new. And when it comes to communication and messaging, even mechanisms, right? I use Claxton as an example just because I don't want to share things that my clients wouldn't want shared. If people want to talk privately with more nonprofit examples, I'm happy to share that, but I'm very protective of my clients. And so for Claxton, we had a blog for God, 13 years or something. And a couple of years ago, I let it go. I was like, is anybody reading the book? The readership was going down. The listenership to the podcast was starting to get a little traction. So when I look at the opportunity cost of those things, I decided to invest in the podcast. But I had to let go 13 years of blog posts. And that was my like blood, sweat, tears. And so I just created space for being sad. I was sad. Yeah. Right? That was a lot. And... It's not like you need to wallow in this. You know, I think some leaders are like, oh my gosh, what are we opening ourselves up to here, right? On the other side, you're opening yourself up to the change and the results that you want to achieve. Like largely it's about identity, right? It's about being rather than just what I'm doing. And so how do you bridge between who you are today as a leader, as an organization, as a team to the future version of that? So a lot of the work I do is like, how are we going to bridge this? And once you create the bridge, you can bless and relieve. Mm-hmm. So being really intentional, how are we going to bridge that future place? Yeah, you got to grieve. Got to grieve. Got to clear it. Let's talk just a little bit more about the tension and building bridges. Yep. In a lot of shops, there's frequently a bit of tension between nonprofit communications people or marketing people and fundraising people. So why is that so common and how do we collaborate more successfully? I'm tempted to ask the question back to you because I really want, I'd love to hear your response from your experience because I feel like you're the fundraising to my mark and then we overlap. Yeah. Well, I will. I'll just jump in. I think that most of that tension comes from lack of understanding and I think inside that understanding is maybe just not enough respect for one another's crafts and the important role we each play. I think I would just add on to because I think that is so spot on. It's this lack of understanding and it's a lack of shared purpose. Hmm. So a lot of the work I do to address this issue is to create shared purpose statements. Right? So you have your personal purpose statement, which is powerful work. How does that relate to us as a team and to the organization as a whole? Ideally, you have all. So having a sense of shared purpose, because then when these, like, I call them crunchy conversations, we have probably both lived through this. Like, I literally had conversations when I was in-house 
where the fundraiser was like, why are we doing the insert thing? And I'm like, well, here's, you know, and, and it just becomes a tete-a-tete really quickly where you're like defending your position and your truth. Yes. And so having a shared purpose statement does this beautiful thing, which is it allows you to be like, oh, wait, it's not that you have your truth and I have mine. We are all on the same patch of grass to stick with the turf analogy, right? We're all here. What can we do, each of us? Like if we're nurturing this, it's a garden, let's issue a garden, right? Like if we all care about this garden, I'm in charge of this, like the soil. The marketing communication is like being very, like we're planting it, right? The soil, we are getting it ready for the seeds that the fundraisers plant and the plants that they nurture. And then eventually whatever comes out of right? But if your soil stinks, you know, isn't good, it's not rich, it's not cared for, it really undermines the ability of the flowers to grow. Yeah. I always introduce the idea of polarity management, right? So often something is presented as a problem to be solved. How are we going to raise a million dollars? When actually it's a polarity to manage. So I mentioned a polarity, which was internal. And a polarity is two things, two good things, two things that must happen in order to achieve the desired goal or outcome, right? So internal, external communication, communication and fundraising, also polarity. So the question becomes, when you overdo one of them, it will be to the detriment of the other. Anything that you overdo becomes negative. And so we do this thing called polarity mapping. It's super powerful. It's very intuitive. I love it as a framework because of that. And I think that's a piece of it is like, you know, so it's like this purpose, having a shared purpose and then transitioning to like, if we are managing this polarity in order to achieve our goal, that's different than we have a problem solved. And I think we should do it this way. I don't know, right? That just gets us back to this. We have two separate gardens. Yeah. And we, we, it's all shared. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I also would say, I think this is, I think the scarcity mindset really plays into this. Mm -hmm. And we don't need. Yeah, you're right. We don't talk about that much. We might talk about it a little bit on the Dan Pilata scarcity mindset, the starvation cycle, like as a context, but in our day to day work and collaboration, I don't think we talk about it. I don't think, because there's a difference between, let's talk about this theoretically, like as it relates to the sector, that's very safe. It's hard to be in these conversations, which by the way, another thing that's interesting is most people on these teams like each other as people, right? So sometimes there's interpersonal dynamics. And so when I'm working with leaders and this is happening, one of the things that we talk through is what questions can you be asking? Like, what are you worried about? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid that it's like, I don't agree with you, that we're not going to achieve our goals? Like, what's the fear underneath that type thing? And then we're having a conversation. And then there's the subconscious mind pieces, right? So there's a lot to unpack in these moments of consternation and possible conflict. But I just find that it just, it shifts the conversation when you're asking those questions. Because defending turf. And that is a communication skill and aptitude that I feel like all leaders could be more attentive to is how do I ask clarifying question rather than I have to have all the answers. I feel like yes. increasingly this is like the art of communication for leaders 
is asking the right questions. It's supposed to always have the answers. Now, do you need to have answers sometimes? Does your team want to be able to turn to you and say, what are we supposed to do? Sure. But not 100% of the time. So, I think that was a big leadership lesson I learned when I went from a director level to a chief level was mm -hmm. I really felt the weight and the pressure to know almost every answer. Right. And the truth is, ask a better question. Ask yeah. a better question. There's a great book called Our Beautiful Question. Yes, I have read it. Love it. I love that book, right? The other thing I will just say on this, and again, when I work with clients, we're always going between the subconscious and conscious mind stuff because we think the conscious mind is in charge. The other reason to get good at asking questions from a leadership perspective, if you allow someone else to come to the answer in their own way by a series of questions, they know of ownership in it in a completely different way. Yeah. Because right? they're, they're tapping into their subconscious, right? And so even if you have that answer, sometimes actually it's going to be long-term, you'll be more successful if you ask a series of questions that guides them to their version of the answer, right? And I just want to acknowledge sometimes time is short. And the leaderly thing to do is to be like, we're going to do this. Let's go. Let's go back. So I don't want to like give the impression the leader should just be out here like endlessly asking questions. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I talk a lot about the, the power of discernment. This yes. would be a time to discern. <laughs> like, should I be asking questions or just being like, here's the thing. Let's do the thing. Yeah. Content. And I think that it's situational. And totally. sometimes providing context, how you came to that decision can at least potentially get buy-in. It certainly can help increase understanding, maybe a little empathy, maybe a little compassion. Like it was go time. And Eric, I see this with teams I work with, and I'm sure you see it as well. It's a big issue, and maybe it's a topic for a whole nother episode. But sometimes I see teams where there is just a lack of trust. We can ask the question, like, tell me what you're afraid of. Tell me how you came to that conclusion. What's behind that belief? And there's not enough trust to actually have those more vulnerable conversations. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. First T of Greater Accra needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Here's Executive Director Josh Smith sharing what he likes about Bloomerang. We love Bloomerang because it's so, like, it's very user-friendly. We're able to do more because our daily tasks of thanking donors and sending thank you notes have been cut more than half because of Bloomerang. Year over year, we have raised more funds. So obviously, I think Bloomerang's been a, a huge part of that. By investing in a donor management system that they actually love using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com forward slash intentional or click the link in the show notes. Yeah. What do you suggest as a professor of leadership? 
sometimes this is a really good reason to bring in the coach. You know, yeah. I want to name something, which is I am always hyper attentive to the fact that when I brought in, I am an outsider, right? So I have my own perspective and then I have my own positionality, right? Privileged white woman. So I have big lines. So when I walk in, I'm attentive to that. So sometimes I'll say, I'm going to coach you from behind the scene. Because when trust is an issue, bringing in an outsider can just be like, oh my, red flag, red flag, red flag. Like it could just throw everyone into fight, flight, or freeze. So one, I should say, like sometimes it's a lead from behind approach. Other times, if there isn't trust with the leader of leaders, talking individually, I'm being transparent, like, hey, I'm going to talk to each one of you individually. I really want to hear what's going on for you. And doing some of this unpacking that we've been talking about one-on-one, because team trust, organizational trust, interpersonal trust, there's always an element of self-trust and lack often of self-trust. So what I'm trying to do in those conversations is I'm looking for patterns, I'm looking for themes, and I'm trying to build up the self-trust element, right? Because when you don't have self-trust, you're sourcing it from someone else. And then we can come together and I can sort of neutrally present, you know, here's what I heard, here's what I think is going on. Actually, one of the other frameworks that I love is the Peer Case, C-A-S-S-E, Communication Self-Assessment. One of the training I love doing most with teams and organizations has to do with pairing that with the Claxon method. That's the what, who, how that we talked about. Because you find out so there's four communication orientation. And I like this assessment because it was it came out of cross-cultural communication work. Because a lot of the assessments are quite white. They're based on North American white dominance. It comes down to these four orientations. And we all have some combo meal of these things. And I would say most people have a strong two and then a very trailing third and fourth. But the clarity it brings, right? When you know, like, are you oriented towards people, action, process, or ideas? Hmm. And there's very concrete implications. And so when I'm seeing trust issues, I'm basically always going to start there and then combo it with the what, who, how, right? As a way to share purpose. I just did one of these workshops last year. And the way that the CEO described it was revelatory. Right? Because we make assumptions. So I'm a strong idea and then people in action process, which is why I have to hire a team that is strong on process, right? It's to offset right. like a very much, but I'm strong on ideas. I'm strong on people and I'll take action. So, you know, seeing what was happening, but if you don't have that insight, you make assumptions like if I'm an idea, why is everybody so worried about what comes next? We're just here. Like we're spitballing, right? This is good. Your action people are so flipped out because like you're ideating they're like are we doing this thing did we just make a really big commitment to a new pro what the what is happening here yeah what are the next steps what are the next what? steps your process people are like i it, what are we going to the, the step by step right and your people people are like if this is new how's everyone feeling and i do have to say like like just the amount of insight that alone offers it is revelatory i mean that was a great word <laughs> that's <laughs> off to that hurts for coming up with that word because then you can be like oh well, I was telling myself a story about Tammy, I mean, it's like, who's a people person, many fundraisers, primary orientation is going to be people, at, which is beautiful. Like, it's such a great thing. And so if you can start hypothesizing about your donors. Because if you have a process-oriented donor, and you're like, so Tammy, I like how Nana, how are the grandkids, you know, and I like want to hear about that. If you, meanwhile, are process-oriented, you're like, this is a waste of time. 
<laughs> she doesn't see me. She doesn't understand me. Let's get on with it. Right. Yeah. And this is real tension. And that erodes trust. It erodes trust. But the cool thing is, once you have the insight, it's like a fusion of trust building. And then we build on that. And then we build on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. I mean, that distinction, that clarity and just being present to it and planful. Like I'm going into a meeting with Erica and Erica is an idea person. So I'm not going to go in with 10 questions about what are the next four steps and who's accountable for the Gantt chart. Yes. Yes. And, and here's where the fluency comes in. Sometimes we need process. It's a moment for process. So the other way to handle that is you could come in and be like, no, it's not your top thing. Like, let me know in advance. This is going to be one of those meetings. You don't love these meetings. And yet here's why we need to have this meeting in order for, and then if you're an action person, because they're like achievement results, let's do this thing. Sometimes to the expense of the process. So like figure out who's going to be in the room and then address, preempt and manage those expectations. And then that's the mindset work from a personal perspective. Okay, how are you going to prep for that meeting? Yeah. How are you going to be present for that meeting? Yes. And I love the naming it because it says, I see you. I understand. And we have to do this. Let's do it as quality, but as quickly as possible. And you can fun with it. I have a podcast episode. The title is like, what type of meeting is this anyway? And I kind of go into this. And then I'm like, come up with a hit parade of types of meeting (laughs) in the subject line. Right. But you can have fun with this, right? You can with like, I don't know, unicorn meeting means it's about ideation. It doesn't all need to be serious. Yeah. You know? It can make you seriously successful while still having some fun. Mm, well said. Pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Frameworks. What is the Claxon research based method and how does it help nonprofits retain more donors and raise more money? So this is where we get to the word-by-word approach. So if any listeners want to see this in action, go to wordoffire.com. Sure, you can put in the show notes. We will. And that, so the Word of Fire is free online tool. You can put in any word you want, and it's going to tell you sort of broad strokes, whether or not to use it, use it with caution or not use it. The database behind that is over 14 million words. We pulled every single word off 2,503 nonprofit website. The reason that was the magic number is because that gave us a 95% confidence interval that we could right, say that this was true for the whole sector. We also broke down by subsector. And it was based on this realization, which I mentioned earlier in our conversation. The reason that effective communication landed on my radar is because of the work on novelty, like I mentioned. So nonprofits love the verb provide. It's the fourth most used verb, okay? Verbs are action words, so I'm a verb first type of person when it comes to messaging and communication, right? What action is like what change do you want to create? Provide is so lame, right? It's just lame. It's the lamest verb ever. They're, it is flexible. Let's give them cred, right? Yeah, props. Like, it's flexible. It's not going to land anywhere on anybody's radar, okay? And so this word-by-word approach is based on a huge amount of research on novelty, And what we are specifically looking to do is get your message, whether or not this is one-on-one or the word of fire is at the organizational level, we get some insight, right? If you're preparing an important email 
to someone, use the word fire, it will allow you to pinpoint a word that is going to get through the reticular activating system in someone's brain. Now, the reticular activating system is like a, yes, pay attention to this or no. And our conscious minds can only process six to seven bits of information per second. Meanwhile, the subconscious mind is processing billions, billions, so many, right? And so it's the job of the reticular activating system to say, pay attention. Is that a light flicker? Like, that I really need to, we just, we've been having some weather and there's some light flickers that came onto my radar. But lights are flicking all the time. There's ambient noise, right? That doesn't make it through because there's no threat to my seat. And once I got deep into that research, I'm like, how can we use that to sort of up the odds that nonprofits message is going to get through the reticular activating system and land on people's radars. So that's the research. And you can do it word by word, word by word, right? So start with the verb, right? So if you're thinking about your mission statement, start with the verb and the mission statement. If it's provide, take another path. <laughs> another path. <laughs> or if it like, has to be provide, what are the words around it that are going to make it past the reticular activities? And this is the art of it. I coach thousands of people through it, right? Art is like that combination of the familiar with the novel. A little bit of novel with the familiar, right? Because you don't want to freak out the reticular activating system. You just want to like get past it. So that's the research. Yeah, the word-by-word approach. And part of the word-by-word is like, you know, nonprofit folks are busy. They're really, really busy. So what can we do to like pick up that pace and also, you know, increase the success of it? Yeah. Words matter. Yeah, Tammy, they matter because they are matter. <laughs> yes. I mean, this is yes. like what like I talk, you know, often about the energetics of language. And the reason I refer to the energetics of language is because words, we think of them as like ethereal or something other. They're not. They're just like, if you look around, they're like your lights or your podcast mic or whatever it is. They're exactly the same. They are creating grooves in your brain. This is why unravelling limiting beliefs is challenging, right? So if they actually are matter, and once you really let that in, you know, you become more attentive. I would say just differently attentive to them usually. Because you're having an impact, right? Creating right. groups in your own brain, in your team's brain, and in your donors' brains, in your volunteers' brain. So what grooves do you want to be creating? And this is when I work with clients, we talk a lot about like, what energy are you looking for? And what's a word that matches that energy? And this is why. Mm -hmm. mm, so powerful. There is such unpacking and such intentional work that really needs to be done. I hope it's going to still want to to listeners. It goes back to readiness and are you really, is this a good time for you to level up your leadership? Like, is that something you want? Is it time for your team? Is it time for the organization? And if not, that, that's cool. But if it is, I want listeners to know that there are ways to do it that are research facts and that are bite-sized. And I can see the power of having an outside facilitator or coach. Again, those eyes and ears and someone else to interpret the energy that the language and the mindset is creating inside the organization because you can't see what you can't see. No, you can't. A lot of it's just perspective. As outside people, consultants and coaches, we just have a different perspective. Yeah. And it can be valuable. Yeah. Wow. Thank you, Erica. Thanks for having me, Theo. It's always wonderful to have time with you and I hope listeners 
got a couple tidbits throughout the course of the conversation. I'm sure they did. As we wrap up each episode, I like to ask a few rapid fire questions okay. just to give a little extra value. I can see you nodding. You're in. I'm in. I'm ready. Let's do All it. All right. First one. What is the best communications advice you've ever received? Don't spend time trying to get rid of you. What book do you recommend to our audience and why? That's a toughie. I'm quite fond of Margaret Wheatley's work and also her book, Leadership and the New Science, which is essentially like how to apply quantum dynamics rather than Newtonian physics to our world, which sounds like completely impractical, but has some very profound practical implications. So I love that for perspective. I also think sort of in terms of our personal professional work, Medicam's book, My God, My Grandmother's Hands, is powerful in terms of that somatic healing. He's so gentle in that creating space for us to heal our own trauma and generational trauma and racial trauma. And it's such a gentle approach. Mm, beautiful. For people and organizations who are on the diversity, equity, and inclusion journey. I mm-hmm. And I hope we all are. What are the three most important traits a nonprofit communications professional must possess? Self-awareness, empathy, and I would say a willingness to fail. Mm, Very good. What's your favorite marketing or communications application or tool? And it's okay if it's Wordifier. Wordifier. I gotta be honest. (laughs) We're going with it. Knowing what you know now about nonprofit communications, what advice would you give your younger self just getting started in the profession? I would say get clear in your strengths and, and come from a place of strength. I feel like, especially when we're younger, we're like, I'm not good at this. I'm not good at, you know, blah, 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 blah. and then we try to like shore up weaknesses, right? Areas for improvement to the detriment of being like, this is what I'm good at. I'm going to get so good at these, right? To me, that's a way of, Channeling and sharing your guests. And the other thing I would say is really like check in with your 80 year old self. Mm-hmm. When you're trying to make career decisions, it's tough to know what to do if you're sitting here and you're looking forward. You get so much clarity by being like, hey, 80 year old Erica, what did we do there and why? Yeah. Right? We're much braver on the other side. Love that. That's the first time I've heard of that kind of perspective, that kind oh, of really? exercise. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it's similar. It's the future self work. Sure. You know, as you talk about it, I do remember an exercise in the Stephen Covey Seven Habits of Highly Effective People that has you visualize an 80th birthday party. Yeah. 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 Erica, as always, such a pleasure and always very thought provoking. So thank you. My pleasure. If you want to learn more about Erica, Claxon Communications, Wordifier, or how to follow her on social media, or even subscribe to her newsletter or the Communicate for Good podcast. We've included links to all of our handles in the show notes, as well as links to the other resources that we've talked about today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser podcast. Keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now for a final word from our sponsor. Mm 
Thank you to our friends at Bloomerang for supporting this episode. If you'd like to learn more about how Bloomerang can help your nonprofit acquire, retain, and engage donors, or learn how First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds in the first year with Bloomerang, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional or click the link in the show notes. The Intentional Fundraiser Podcast is a fundraising transformed original. It's hosted by me, Tammy Zonker, founder and president of Fundraising Transformed, where we help equip and empower fundraisers, nonprofit leaders, and board members to transform their fundraising so they can transform the world. Visit fundraisingtransform.com slash podcast to subscribe to this podcast and subscribe to my newsletter to get fundraising lessons, tools, and helpful resources delivered straight to your inbox each month. If you want my help with taking your fundraising to the next level, become a member of my Fundraising Transformers community as a growth member and join me live each month where I'll teach you the same strategies I use to lead, train, and coach thousands of nonprofits, social service organizations, healthcare foundations, private schools, colleges, and universities to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars including a single gift of $27.1 million. As a member, you can participate in my Ask Me Anything sessions every month and get answers to your burning questions. Chat with other growth members inside our private and safe online community about what you're working on, struggling with, and share lessons learned. And get instant access to my growing library of on-demand self-paced training classes. New content is added every single month. Learn more about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.com slash growth. Talk soon. Do you get annoyed with the generic repetitive outreach that And now I'm annoyed. Seriously, folks, communicating with the right donors at the right time with the right message is critical to reaching your fundraising goals and ensuring higher donor retention rates. With iWave, you can identify ideal donors that align with your nonprofit's mission, get actionable cultivation and engagement direction for each donor or group of donors, and see what other affinities your donors have that align with your nonprofit, allowing you to build strong, personal relationships with them. Make your donor feel like a partner, not a checkbook. Learn more at iWave.com slash fundraising transformed.